You're listening to Real A Theology, a podcast that considers contemporary philosophy of religion from a naturalist or atheist perspective. everybody to Real Atheology, and today we've got a wonderful guest, uh, Dr. Kenny Pierce is with us today, and so we're going to be interviewing him and talking about uh, his work and also uh, his reasons for being a theist. He's one of my favorite theist uh, philosophers, so welcome, Dr. Kenny Pierce. Thank you very much for having me. So I guess for our audience, tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, maybe where you are currently working, because you think you just got a new position, right? That's right. So, um, yeah, I work in uh, history of early modern philosophy and philosophy of religion. I'm a professor currently at James Madison University in Virginia. Uh, I've just moved here after six years at Trinity College Dublin in Ireland. That... uh must have been a pretty cool place to live. How was that living in Ireland? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a very, uh, a very neat place. Um, Dublin is a lovely city. And uh, Trinity is an amazing university. That's awesome. So, okay, so I got to ask what brought you from such a wonderful, like Dublin, Ireland, back over (laughs) here, where it's not quite as beautiful? (laughs) Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a bit tough just uh, picking up and moving across the ocean with, uh, with kind of without all your family ties and, and everything. And uh, that was never something I planned on or intended to do. Um, but it, it just was a really exciting position that fell in my lap, you know, because I'm an, an expert on George Barclay, who's the famous philosophical alumnus of Trinity College. Um, so I was kind of recruited over there by surprise. But uh, moving overseas was never really part of my, my life plan. So I, uh, I enjoyed it while it lasted, but didn't really think it was something I could do in the long term. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's pretty neat, though. Um, I imagine it was a pretty uh, nice experience, though. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. Um, well, great. Uh, you've already, So you've mentioned, yeah, a little bit about uh, your area of expertise. Um, so maybe we could go back up a little bit and discuss, first of all, like, what's, what's your background? So... Uh, did you grow up in a religious household? Um, and if so, kind of like what tradition were you raised in? Um, and yeah, just kind of what was the nature of your upbringing with regards to religion? Yeah, so um, I grew up attending a, a Protestant church that was kind of broadly evangelical, I'd say. The the church represented multiple denominations, so it had originally been formed by a merger that was um, Presbyterian, Baptist, and Methodist. We always had pastors from the American Baptist Convention, and uh, I went to, to camp at the American Baptist camp in Post Falls, Idaho, which um, was a, a big influence as well. And all of that stuff, I would say, was kind of broadly within American evangelicalism and kind of tied to a lot of more non-denominational type um, 
versions of evangelicalism. When I moved away, I found that uh, the form of evangelicalism that I kind of knew of was relatively moderate compared to some things that are going on in some other places. Um, but, uh, but that was kind of my background. And I guess kind of two things that uh, contributed to me going into philosophy is that um, one, I, I read too much science fiction as a kid and uh, was like asking what if questions all the time. Uh, but the other was that I had a lot of religious questions that nobody could answer. And after a while, I figured out that it wasn't just that nobody in my church could answer them in my little church in my little town, uh, but actually that nobody could answer them. Um, but a lot of people had thought really hard about them and the things they said were really interesting. Um, and so that kind of, for me, was the, the pathway into, into philosophy. At what age would you say, like, did you kind of have a feeling that you wanted to be a philosopher at that point? Or was it just kind of you were interested in philosophy, but you had other aspirations at the time? Or what, um, what made you decide to actually be a philosopher of, well, philosopher first and foremost, but then specifically maybe philosopher of religion in particular? Right. So um, a lot of these things happened a little bit uh, by accident or um, I might say providentially, but that's controversial in this context, right? <laughs> Fair uh, enough. But, um, you know, so I, I started my undergraduate education um, thinking very practically that computer science sounded like a career and philosophy sounded like a hobby. Sure. Um, and um, I think, you know, I, I tell people I was a bad philosopher when I was 13 and I've been working on becoming a better philosopher since then. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we should, should think that only the professionals are philosophers. Just like it's not only Olympic sprinters who are runners. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, uh, and so probably people taking the time to listen to this podcast are, are philosophers one way or another. Um, and so I think I was, you know, I was a bad philosopher when I was 13 and I've been trying to become a better one. Um, and so I was studying computer science and philosophy uh, and my undergraduate degree. Um, and I was always thinking computer science was the hobby, uh, was, a, was the career and philosophy was the hobby. But I, um, I just started looking like somebody might pay me to do philosophy all day. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so I sent out uh, grad school applications and um, there was a lot, of, a lot of further luck or providence, uh, depending on your perspective, between then and now, because you may know there's a lot more PhDs than there are academic jobs um, in philosophy yeah. and many other disciplines. And kind of a lot of things happened along the way that got me to where I am um, that weren't just um, hard work or brilliance or something, but uh, favorable circumstances. Yeah. Um, I was always interested in philosophy of religion because religious questions were part of my entry into philosophy. But I ended up focusing on the historical stuff partly just because I was good at it and was, you know, succeeding in those classes. Um, and then subsequently, I kind of got into philosophy of religion again by a bit of an accident, um, which is to say that I, uh, I was blogging about this stuff because I was interested in it. 
um, way back in um, what 2006 or something when when blogs were big. Right. Um, and um, I'm exaggerating. It was 2010, maybe. But um, and uh, I got invited to join the Pros Blogion, which was a kind of very popular group blog about for kind of theistic philosophy. And um, in discussion following a post that I wrote there about divine omnipotence, Alexander Proust wrote to me and asked if I wanted to co-author a paper. Oh, wow. Um, That's... Um, yeah, so I was like, uh, I was like midway through my PhD and writing historical stuff on George Barclay and hadn't published in philosophy of religion, but I certainly knew about Proust's work um, so that was kind of a, a really exciting moment and was kind of the start for me of working in contemporary analytic philosophy of religion. Um, and most of what I've written in that area since then has built on that paper on omnipotence in one way or another. Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty neat. That's, that must've felt pretty good being approached by <laughs> someone like Bruce. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I like what you said about a lot of people being, um, how people are philosophers, you know, they're not necessarily professional philosophers, but we're all kind of philosophers in one way or another, if we're sort of thinking and working on these questions a lot. Um, what would you say um, to a theist or an atheist, uh, either one, if maybe they didn't want to pursue an academic career in philosophy, um, do you have any recommendations or uh, advice on uh, why it's important, though, uh, to be aware of the philosophy surrounding, you know, these kinds of matters. So maybe philosophy of religion. Um, is that important to be at least aware of, even if you're not going to do academics? Yeah. I mean, I'd say, you know, I'd say it's always beneficial for us to think harder about our most basic commitments, to think critically about like, why do you believe this rather than something else? And also to try to understand why other people believe what they do. Yeah. I think one of the best things that philosophy can do for think about teaching like general education students who haven't chosen it as a major, but their university is making them take the class or whatever, right? Yeah. I think, you know, one of the best things that can do is teach you to work hard at seeing the world from somebody else's point of view. And Think like there is this whole view of the world that's based on a different set of assumptions than yours and it has its own internal logic and you can work out what its consequences are and then you can make sense of why people think the way they do and we can be so quick to think to just react or say people think that way because they're evil or stupid or something yeah. and, and um but okay we're all a little evil and a little stupid now and then but, but um, by and large, when you're thinking about things like theism and atheism or things like Christianity and Hinduism or, or Democrat and Republican or whatever, you know, people have deep commitments that they're kind of applying and working out the, the logical consequences of. And we can understand that if we're going to communicate and so there's a sort of simultaneously understanding in a more intellectual way, your own commitments, where they come from, why the people teaching you taught you this stuff, and also understanding what are the other ways of seeing the world and what do they have going for them. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, and and if we're committed to truth and we think the questions are important, um, almost all theists think the questions are the question of the existence of God is very important. Not all atheists do, right? Sure. Um, but many atheists do. Um, but if you if you think those questions are important, then it's worth thinking carefully about them and knowing what the kind of best available position is. And that doesn't mean everybody does it full time, obviously, but it means kind of we probably all do it now and then it's worth trying to do it well. Yeah. Is there some ways that people can get involved in the, you know, kind of the discussion without, you know, so you know, professionals will write papers and stuff. And even some non-professionals will occasionally write papers and get them published. Uh, but, you know, most people aren't going to go write a whole paper and try to get it published, um, you know, for various reasons. Are there ways that both theists and atheists can kind of get involved in a productive discussion without, you know, worrying about having to be published or, you know, like what are, what are some other ways they can kind of get in on the uh, the game, if you will? Sure. I mean, so there's so much material out there to read and think about now. <laughs> overwhelming. And, yeah, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And, um, you know, people can get pr- people who devote a lot of time to self-education can certainly get to the point where they could be reading journal articles if they really want to. Right. But that doesn't happen over. That doesn't happen instantaneously. They presuppose a lot of background. Yeah. But for those people, faith and philosophy and Journal of Analytic Theology are both really good philosophy of religion journals that are open access. You don't need a university account. Uh, you know, if you get all the way to, to that point. Um, right now, there are obviously a lot of online communities and a lot of sources on the internet that people can use. Um, those are obviously of varying quality. Sometimes yeah. they are very one-sided. Sometimes they break down into kind of people shouting at one another and, and whatever. Um, so, but I would say kind of looking for those good, the podcasts, the YouTube channels or the Twitter feeds or whatever. Um, and and something, something I've loved about Twitter, I, I hope it doesn't collapse. I haven't mm-hmm. been on it very long. But something I've loved about it is like undergraduate philosophy students will ask a question and a bunch of professors will start arguing about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, And so there's a way in which it is really democratic like that. If you can find the right circle of people who are going to be kind and thoughtful um, and and not just be shouting. I've noticed that too. It's been nice to see that a lot of, really good professionals will take the time uh, to not, like you said, not only address a, a person's question, but then, yeah, they get into like some kind of meaningful dialogue uh, as well. That's, that's pretty neat uh, that that has kind of become more of a norm now. Um, are there any other, so twi- Twitter, like you said, can be sort of hit or miss, obviously, if, like you said, if you kind of cultivate the right circles, uh, it can be highly beneficial couple downsides or you know you can get sort of uh if you don't find the right circle to be in it can be pretty um toxic uh but also the character limit is usually a, a hard thing you know when you're doing deep uh philosophy having to restrict your discussion to you know these word counts uh can be 
quite challenging. Are there any other online resources or communities that you found are good that are maybe a little bit more conducive to long form discussions? Um, you know, I know Facebook, you can write longer posts and stuff, but any, anything besides like the typical, you know, Facebook, Twitter or something like that, that you have any uh, knowledge about where people have good um, interactions? Well, I guess something I'd note is that um, kind of especially post-pandemic, but even before, there are more and more opportunities to actually take classes online. Mm -hmm. And some of those massive online open classes are actually free, um, but they're also paid ones. And uh, many community colleges often offer evening personal enrichment classes that are not enormously expensive, you know. Yeah. Um, and so these are all kind of things that people could think about to get in more discussion. And a lot of those, um, the online classes, very often there are discussion boards where you would be interacting with the other students. Uh, and so that's another thing where you're kind of all actually studying the same material and doing the reading. Yeah. And you could get kind of a, a little taste of, of what college education and philosophy would look like without committing to a four-year degree in it. Or if you kind of did that a long time ago for one of your gen eds and regret not having the opportunity to do more, those, um, those things are out there. Um, I, my, I went to University of Pennsylvania for my undergraduate. All of us were very proud when uh, during the pandemic, Shakira posted her certificate yeah. She had completed Penn's course in ancient Greek philosophy online, right? I remember that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, so that's a but that's a that's a thing that's uh, that's really out there now. That uh, the ability to do those classes online. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good idea. Uh, and then you have kind of moderated discussion as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's hopefully going to stay more productive. And there's a syllabus, so you kind of focused. So. That's that's a great idea. Um, do you have any, since you brought up kind of the literature and how vast it is, um, that kind of leads me to my next question. Do you have any recommendations? So if anyone's like wanting to get into philosophy of religion, you know, at least dip their toes in any good introductory books that you recommend, like, you know, start here. If you want to kind of get into this, you know, here's my top three books or however many you have to recommend. But so in, yeah. So assuming that we're assuming that we're starting at, you've kind of gone as far as you can go with C.S. Lewis. And sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're we're kind of looking for something that's beyond that. Because yeah. actually, I think as much as as much as I and and some other philosophers complain about people thinking that C.S. Lewis is like the utmost limit of intellectual Christianity, right. it's like you've like summited the peak. Yeah. You complain about that, but actually, he's a very good path in. Sure. For for people, he's very mere Christianity is a very readable book. That and as long as you don't think it's the final answers to everything, it actually can really get you started. Sure. When you get into that, um, another really good book that's short, that's accessible, is Plantinga's God, Freedom, and Evil. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess the kind of um, uh, atheist counterpoint to that might be um, Mackey's Miracle of Theism, which. I mean, it does have some difficult points, but it's not nearly as difficult as Sobel or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll um, talk about them a little later. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I will say that this debate book that I recently did with uh, with Graham Moppy is intended to be accessible to to broader audiences. I think it's probably, if I'm being honest, a little more difficult than the books I just mentioned. But uh, I hope it's not too much more difficult. We kind of the issues are really intrinsically hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we work hard at not presupposing background and, and bringing them down. And so, and there's a really I do want to direct people to the glossary if they haven't noticed that there's a glossary in the back with definitions of terms. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a bunch of philosophy hiding in the glossary. Oh, good. Um, in, yeah. in, in terms of, um, you know, but but also when you're reaching unfamiliar terms, uh, that's something that I hope will help. And so I hope people who are willing to kind of work through that, that it will work for them as a, a fairly introductory text. Yeah. Be more difficult than plan to go. Okay. Yeah. And I want to plug that book too, because um, I thought it was really good. I really enjoyed both uh, yours and Oppie's contributions. Um, it was a very interesting and fun read. So for everybody out there, um, is there a God? It's a discussion between Kenny Pierce and Graham Oppie. And we'll put a, we'll probably throw up a, a, picture of the book in post edit here uh but yes that was i really enjoyed that book a lot yeah so something else i mentioned in terms of resources is the cambridge elements in philosophy of religion series mm -hmm. these are are they're little books that are like 60 70 page introductions and and graham has written the volume on atheism and agnosticism for that series but kind of any topic in philosophy of religion, you, there are tons of these books in the series now, and everyone I've looked at has been great. Um, yeah. And so that's another kind of little, if you're looking for a little like 60 to 80 page introduction on some particular topic in philosophy of religion, those are really good. Excellent. Yeah. I, I have a couple of those myself. Yeah. Um, they are really good. Nice and short and to the point. Um, excellent. All right. Well, um, kind of going along with the uh, theme here in terms of um, we've been talking a little bit about how these discussions, we hope they're productive, but they can be um, heated. Obviously uh, you uh, had a tweet recently that I'll just read here. You, you said people on all sides can be so quick to become angry and condescending when talking about religion and irreligion. I find this sad. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot we could all learn from one another with a little patience. What are your thoughts on maybe why people tend to be so quickly um, angered over this topic? So, so for me, uh, I think a lot of my personal issues when I tend to get angry over topics like this come or stem from my background. So, uh, my background obviously was as a believer for uh, uh, the majority of my life. And then of course I kind of went through this transition phase where I lost my, my faith. Um, and obviously, you know, I'm in a different place right now, uh, at the moment. And so I think for me, and maybe you can speak to this, if you think this is a general theme or just sort of a, only a very small part of it, but for me, it kind of that kind of that pain of having lost my prior faith, you know, that was a very painful event for me. Um, you know, cause I, I grew up believing, this whole thing, you know, and uh, with with uh, whole world view, right? And it just sort of came crumbling down. Um, and and then sort of the, you know, it's one thing to kind of change your world view, 
but it's another thing when so much is attached to the worldview, like, you know, your purpose and like kind of the high stakes that are uh, allegedly associated with it, you know, like a lot of um, fairly fundamentalist believers would say, well, now you're going to hell or, you know, or you, you're, you never were saved, you know, you're, you're going to hell. So there's kind of this urgency of this matter. And, and the fact that it's so confusing and no one can find agreement is like frustrating, you know, um, so that's just a little from my perspective, but do you think that's common thing or why do you think in general, you know, kind of like politics, uh, religion can cause so much anger on both sides so quickly too? Yeah. So, I mean, I think part of it is uh, just sheer tribalism that people develop an us and them attitude and, get, and yeah. you don't want to exclude the outsiders and whatever. Um, but I, I don't want to attribute all of it to that because I think that would be kind of being uncharitable and, and <laughs> kind of not trying to see people's reasons. And I want to see people's reasons. Yeah. I think your experience is probably not uncommon that the kind of this was something that was really important to you. And so when it's lost, it can be sensitive. Yeah. I think they're a kind of more extreme um, experience is common that there are many atheists who have been uh, personally hurt by religion, sometimes in very extreme ways. Um, we all know lots of examples of that sort of thing if we haven't been living under a rock. <laughs> um, and, and then kind of related also, there are atheists who have a very um, commendable concern with the evils that religion has historically caused in the world, not only as they affect them personally, um, but in a much broader sort of way. Um, and so I think that kind of uh, helps explain why from the, on the, the atheist side, those are all kind of very understandable reasons. Um, on the, the theist side, of course, the people think this is literally the most important thing that in, in the world, right? Yeah. And not, not all theists, right? But just like none of the things I said before apply to all atheists, but especially a lot of the theists that you're seeing in the American context, where the dominant voice is coming from broadly evangelical circles, is kind of the voice that you hear the loudest. Uh, and so these people think, like, you're by being out there promoting atheism, you're leading people straight to hell, right? And, and what could be more, what could I possibly have more reason to oppose than that? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess kind of what I want to say to those atheists is I would just ask you to try not to be too quick to attribute all those things to every theist before you kind of get to know an individual and, and what they're all about, that there are so many different versions of theistic religion. There are also a small number of people who believe in some kind of God but aren't uh, really religious. I suppose there are lots of people, according to the surveys, who believe in God but are not actively practicing a an organized religion, right? That's actually um, a very large number of Americans, according to the survey results. Yeah. So, um, the, so, you know, people are individuals and they didn't personally do all those things. And so you just have to kind of figure out how to engage with the individual. 
On the theist side, especially for kind of people coming from this broadly evangelical angle, I would just ask people to have more faith in God and more love for their neighbor. Mm. If you have real faith in God, if you're trusting in the goodness of God, right? And you know that you believe what the Bible says, where God promises you'll seek me and find me when you see me with your whole heart. Then, um, you know, okay, get frustrated with ultra dogmatic atheists who can't hear a word you say, uh, no matter how kind you try to be. Sure, fine, be frustrated with them. But, but people who genuinely care about truth and kind of are, are seeking and have reasons, and, you know, like those people should be encouraged. And when you're doing the angry browbeating thing in the first place, you're not being loving, but in the second place, it doesn't look like you're showing concern for truth. It, it looks like you're insecure about whether your beliefs can stand up to scrutiny and you want to block people from scrutinizing them you know, by this anger and browbeating. And it, it just doesn't look like faith and it doesn't look like love. Mm. Um, and so the, the kind of summary of the whole thing for both sides is that um, as, as uh, James, the episode of James, the Bible says, you've, everyone has to be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. Mm. Um, right, that is, you just, and, and nobody doesn't say never get angry. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you have to, but you have to kind of hear what this specific individual is saying and not just kind of impose your idea of what all atheists or all theists are. Yeah. Hear them. Yeah. Um, this is, this is a good segue into the next question, which is related. Um, do you have any recommendations or strategies for how, uh, and you've kind of touched on this already, but any strategies that you found are useful in helping people have more productive conversations? Because um, I know, you know, Facebook and Twitter are notorious for conversations where they devolve very quickly and, you know, people become impatient. And then it's before you know it, people are just sort of yelling at each other and calling each other names. Um, but I, I found a few you know, there's a few people out there, um, yourself included, who just seem quite good at having productive discussions. Uh, are there any strategies that everyone else could kind of put into practice that could sort of make it more often the case that, you know, these conversations are actually productive and fruitful rather than going off the rails, you know, after a few back and forth? That, yeah. Yeah. I, I guess what I'd say is... I think it's important to view a dialogue as cooperative. Yeah. And if you think about my the the book with Oppie, I hope that it looks cooperative, even though I have, even though it says debate on the cover. Yes. That's right? one thing I loved about it. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And so as we start looking at dialogue as cooperative, where what we're trying to do is help each other think through the consequences of our commitments, help each other clarify our thinking. Right. and help each other as pursuers of truth. And if we start thinking of things in that cooperative way, then 
we're not eager to jump on something somebody said to kind of score points. We're, um, you know, it's, I'm seeing this problem here uh, in light of this problem. Do you want to stand by that statement or do you want to take it back? Right. right. And like people are allowed to take back their statements. Right. Because we're trying to get this right rather than to pin some error on somebody. Right. Um, and this is a little bit different. This is a way of, of trying to get to um, the best version of each view, right? That's part of our goal. Um, I don't necessarily like the term, a, a lot of the kind of internet debate people use the term steel man. Um, And I'm talking about something in the neighborhood, but one of the reasons I don't like that term is that it suggests that like um, my conversation partner wasn't smart enough to state their own view properly. So I'm going to do it for them now. (laughs) Um, Whereas if you take this kind of cooperative approach where you're like, I'm trying to help you get the best version of your view and you're trying to help me get the best version of mine. And we're doing this by kind of comparing them and raising objections to one another and, and thinking about what the possible strategies are. And yeah. so I think it's kind of that, that cooperative mindset that does the work. Yeah. I, I think that's really good. That's kind of like, yeah, I, I like that you called it. It's, it's a mindset. It's a way of seeing the other person, not as your uh, opponent, uh, but as like a, a partner in, even though you don't agree, um, you're still doing something together, working at a common goal, rather than it's me versus you and I'm trying to defeat you sort of picture. Um, would you say that's accurate? Yeah. 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 And that can be difficult to do. Um, I have you run into cases where you just can't get the other person to be cooperative, where you try as much as you can to uh exude that cooperative uh mindset but they're just having none of it oh for sure and one of the one of the first things i learned about about twitter is that which i kind of joined after this book came out because i thought it was good to have kind of a a public facing thing that was different than my facebook which is kind of personal and family stuff you know so yeah um and so one of the things i one of the first things i learned is that the most difficult skill of twitter is knowing whom to ignore (laughs) Because because one of the great things about it, like I was saying, is how democratizing it is mm-hmm. that any random person can just ask a question and you might get a bunch of experts responding um, and it's great. And so you don't want to just ignore people because they don't have academic credentials or something or even because they're anonymous. That's not a good reason for you don't want to ignore all the anonymous people. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it can be really hard to tell whether a question is being asked in a trolling way or as an annoying gotcha, or whether it's like a serious question that wants an answer. Yeah. And so, you know, I do normally, if I'm not already familiar with an account, I, I do try to kind of give them the benefit of the doubt and go through a, a couple of exchanges with the most charitable interpretation of what they're after that I can muster. Yeah. But um, (laughs) but when it's not working, you sometimes you you just have to stop. And I have had that happen with lots of theists and lots of atheists. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, There are definitely theists I can't talk to on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It happens on both sides for sure. (laughs) Uh, It's a special place. (laughs) Um, Okay, great. Well, um, 
you mentioned earlier when you were talking about your background, how you are kind of uh, the history of philosophies kind of was the main focus, right? And your main um, expertise was in uh, Berkeley, correct? Um, and I know a lot of your scholarship is also based in, so I, as a mathematician, I really like Leibniz uh, as one of the co-founders of uh, the calculus, um, but you've also done a lot of work on Leibniz, but from mm -hmm. the philosophy side. Um, so could you kind of expand on what got you interested in him and kind of uh, that historical research? Uh, how did how did that come about? Yeah. Um, so like I kind of said, you know, I, I was studying philosophy as an undergraduate student and the history stuff was just what I got interested in and did well at. Mm -hmm. I, you know, those are requirements for philosophy majors. Everybody has to take them. Yeah. And I think something that drew me to early modern is that most of the professors that I was taking classes from didn't take theism or religion real seriously and weren't necessarily even interested in the questions that were most bothering me okay. as someone kind of trying to think hard coming from the background that I was coming from and trying to think these problems through. And I found that the philosophers we were studying from the 17th and 18th centuries um, seemed much more relevant. Like they were asking the same questions as me in a way that maybe most of my not professors in non-historical classes weren't. Um, and history is also a strength of that department. So it was a natural fit in that way. Um, and Leibniz was, uh, was really important there. I, um, I started believing in evolution while taking class about on Leibniz, actually. Interesting. Um, because Leibniz says this really, um, I mean, this was also a, a process of developing more respect for expertise and realizing that I can't become an expert in every discipline ever. Uh, <laughs> right. But, but Leibniz, um, he makes this complaint about Newton. He says, um, he says, according to, uh, to Mr. Newton and his followers, God has to wind his watch now and then. Um, and what he was talking about uh, was this. So all the planets in our solar system go in nice elliptical orbits that are in roughly the same plane. Um, Newton's laws allow them to go in any ellipse whatsoever, including ones where you swing really close and swing way back out as comets actually do, yeah. and including ones that are askew from the plane, um, which we've discovered uh, Jupiter actually, or, um, which we've discovered that Pluto actually does, right? Is a skew or Neptune. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both maybe. Um, Pluto and Neptune or something like that. Yeah. Um, so you can be a skew, but all the, all the planets are, they're in one plane, they're very orderly, and they all have low eccentricity, which means they stay close to the same distance from the sun all the time which is really important for us, so we don't get really cold. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so Newton said, well, God must have just set it up like that from the beginning, mm -hmm. right? So they'd all be like that and be really nice. Um, but then there's a problem. Newton's law is the law of universal gravitation. That is, everything gravitates on everything else. You get these nice, pretty elliptical orbits if you consider just the sun and one planet. Right. Well, all the planets pull on each other. And as Newton recognized, that's eventually going to make the system fall apart. Uh, that is, the planets will either fly off into space or uh, circle into the sun. 
And mathematically, it was not possible for him to compute how long that would take. Right. Um, if I'm not mistaken, we now think it takes longer than the lifetime of the sun. So it's okay. So it's, yeah. but, um, <laughs> We're but, safe. <laughs> but, he, but, you know, he thought that the, like, they didn't know that the sun was going to explode eventually. Right? right. They thought all this stuff was going to go on until God decides it's done. Right. Um, so Newton thought, well, he, at one point he says, well, maybe God just has to, like, intervene and fix the planetary orbits now and then. Um, right. And, and, and what Leibniz is saying is, are, like, do you really think that God is that bad at engineering? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. He says in the same context, he had not the, for, you know, God, according to Newton, had not the foresight to make it a perpetual motion. <laughs> um, right? But is he just didn't know how to make a clock that works. Instead, he made one that he has to fiddle with all the time. Yeah. And, and so the thing, this thing that struck me about Leibniz, his emphasis on divine perfection, meaning divine rationality, meaning God sees everything in advance. God has this plan for the universe that is all laid out. And the idea that a lot of the ways that I maybe had been thinking about God. A lot of the ways that young Earth type people think about God are like assuming that God's just fiddling with things in an ad hoc way, mm. rather than kind of setting up the universe according to laws that do what God wants it to do. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And so that was kind of that was kind of a big impact that Leibniz had on me in when I was. Uh, when I was first studying him is this way of, of thinking about God in terms of God's rationality, in terms of this providential plan that's all built into the basic design of the universe. And then the idea that a lot of these kind of creationist types are, are just really not doing that, right? That is their, their God is a shoddy engineer. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay, so that got you into Leibniz because he was kind of asking the questions that you were interested in. And um, and that led to some changes in your beliefs. And would you say that... So you, you spent a bit of time studying these philosophers of the past. Um, would you say that's an important part of understanding or uh, so the, studying these philosophers... Uh, I, I know that a typical uh, philosophy program will have you study, obviously, the uh, history of philosophy at least a little bit. Would you say that that's pretty important? Like, how does studying these past philosophers sort of affect or impact the contemporary uh, practices of philosophy? Yeah, so people's actual approaches to this vary a lot when you look from one philosopher to another. Uh, I'm one of those who can cite something from a thousand years ago right next to uh, something from last week right and <laughs> and kind of to me it's in a way all one conversation when i'm doing my philosophy of religion work mm -hmm. um, and i'd say i've just found that that works mm -hmm. just by doing it and so i don't have a real theory of why history is important for philosophy um, I've just found that it works. One thing I will say is that one of the things I think philosophy is all about 
is encountering views of the world very different from your own and letting them challenge your beliefs mm. and kind yeah. of thinking through the reasons that they give them. Yeah. And you need to be encountering people separated from you in time, place, and culture. That's fair. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to ask too, kind of in that that kind of speaks to this question um, is how how important do you think it is for people who want to get into at least, you know, some depth of the philosophy, you know, so if they're interested in say, you know, the philosophy of mind or, uh, or any particular topic, I guess it doesn't really matter which, how important do you think it is to at least somewhat study the uh, philosophers of old, even way back to Plato and stuff? Um, do you think that's really important that they at least have exposure to them or could you really just be okay jumping straight into current thoughts on philosophy of mind or philosophy of whatever? I think, you know, if you look at the beginning of a, a physics textbook or something like that, or the yeah. beginning of a chapter in a physics textbook, yeah, there's this cartoon history that makes historians of science pull their hair out. <laughs> but, right. But it's like a story. It's a myth in a way. Yeah. Of uh, about where these theories and ideas came from. Sure. That has some basis in reality. It's not just invented out of whole cloth, right? But the point of the story is not historical accuracy. Right. Right. Um, I think we have a lot of that, like mythic history of philosophy is a thing too. And uh, you can get a long way in terms of understanding and engaging with contemporary thought, just using the mythic stuff. Sure. Um, right. So if you, so you need to know what Cartesian dualism is. Right. Right. Uh, you need to know what the Humean theory of causation and laws is, even though Hume endorses pretty much none of the views that analytic philosophers call Humean. Um, <laughs> right. Like, but, but you need to, you kind of you have to have that mythic history in order to engage. I think if you take the time to to actually engage with the classics, so there's so much insight in them that is lost in that um, kind of mythic history. Hmm. Some of these classics, you have to know a lot and work really hard at them to get any of that insight out. And so you've got to decide <laughs> what's the kind of return on investment. Yeah. Um, like I'm thinking of like Kant's critique of pure reason. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. But, but Plato, like if you're talking about philosophy of mind, Plato's Phaedo, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's just a book you could sit down and read without yeah. you, with very little knowledge of the cultural context and with um, kind of very little background in the rest of Plato's system, and it'll help you do philosophical thinking. I think that's also true of, of Descartes' Meditations. These are books where there's some part, there's some things you're gonna miss, right? If you don't have the context and the background and so forth. But a person can just sit down with these books and they'll help you do philosophical thinking. And if I can remember, if I can mention one more text. Yeah. Um, because I mentioned people separated from you in time, place, and culture. Yeah. Shunza, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, X-U-N-Z-I, an okay. ancient Chinese philosopher. Yeah. Um, these two discussions, the discussion of heaven 
and the discussion of rites. Hmm. Also, rites as in rituals, R-I-T-E-S. Okay, yeah. Um, these two texts are just amazing in this way as well, that are, are questioning if our ritual practices do not manipulate supernatural forces to alter the world, why are they so important to us? Mm, mm-hmm. Um, that's what those texts are about. And it talks a whole bunch about funeral customs. I was really thinking about the disruption of those during the pandemic, especially because I was in Ireland where there's especially where these large funerals are especially important. Yeah. And and the way he's talking about like why you why do you need those? Why do even non-religious people often want a church funeral for their loved one? Sure. And similarly, church, and similarly they may want a church wedding. Uh, just a, a deeply, deeply insightful text, second century BC. Okay. Um, based on this, starting from this assumption yeah. that rituals don't manipulate supernatural forces. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's really cool. I'd, I'd not heard of him. Uh, how did how did you come across him? Yeah. So I um, there's been a push, a really productive push, I've found in philosophy to kind of include more of this material in our teaching. Yeah, And so when I was teaching at Valparaiso University in Indiana, I was assigned to teach a general education class called The Good Life. And I had a colleague who specialized in East Asian philosophy. And I asked kind of what text would you consider using for this class if I was going to include some little bits. Yeah. Um, and so he recommended like three books and I read them. And this was, was like the bit that I'm thinking you never know anything about ancient China or about the Confucian tradition that he stands in to yeah. read these texts and have them help you think philosophically. Of course, you'll get more if you do have that background, but you could, but just anybody can sit down and read those texts in translation and start doing some philosophical thinking with them. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very fascinating. Um, and that kind of leads to the, the next thing too, uh, since we're talking kind of, uh, you know, how much should we read and, uh, uh, delve into the history here is that, well, especially in philosophy of religion, you've got even a lot of the major thinkers of today, like, you know, Mackey, you mentioned already, and Sobel, um, but Oppie and like Draper and, and some of these other um, big names in, in uh, on the atheist side, kind of they draw a lot from uh, Hume, uh, or a lot of their work is based on Hume. And then on the theist side, you have like Catholics and, and some other um, believers who rely heavy on like Aquinas, mm -hmm. uh, right? So these, these um, historical uh, figures and philosophers, what would you say, or what do you see as Leibniz's influence um, in contemporary philosophy of religion? So he's, I mean, his name does come up, but maybe not as much as like Aquinas and some of these other ones, but what would you say his main influence is? Yeah. So I guess, um, one thing is that he invented the word theodicy. Okay. Yeah. Um, which is a word you hear a lot. It is. Um, it was, he made it up as a, from the words God and justice in Greek for the title of a book that was published in 1710. Okay. Um, so that's one thing. And some of Leibniz's strategies for theodicy have been very influential, um, especially the kind of regularity theodicy that is saying that 
um, a lot of these evils follow from God making a world that gets all these good phenomena according to simple laws. Mm -hmm. So maybe God could get the phenomena without the, could get the goods without the evils, but not if God's also going to make the world behave according to simple laws. And there are reasons why God should do that. Mm. Um, that's a core part of Leibniz's theodicy that I think a lot of people still think about. Um, Leibniz also is the first philosopher to make um, kind of widespread, systematic, foundational use of the concept of a possible world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so Leibniz's contribution to the theory of possibility and necessity uh, is enormously influential. I mean, in all of analytic metaphysics, analytic philosophy, but but in philosophy of religion. Um, so I'd say those things are major influences, and um, Leibniz is also the person who gave what's now considered the standard formulation of the question: Why is there something rather than nothing? Yeah. Those words are Leibniz's, um, and his version of the um, contingency argument. The idea that God is the best answer to that question is one that continues to be widely discussed. So while you won't find big groups of Leibnizians like there are big groups of Thomists, yeah, um, he does have quite substantial influence. And would you say that you could be a so, for instance, uh, well, if you think of like Aristotle and Aquinas building on him, there's a lot of people who think that obviously Aristotle's work and Aquinas um, building on that is still very much relevant today and that they got a lot right and they are contemporary uh, Thomists or, you know, uh, something. Can you be, do you think a contemporary Leibnizian, like is, is, is are his ideas still defensible today uh, where you can, you know, just like you can be a Thomist, you could be a current Leibnizian? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not sure. His most famous view in the philosophy of religion is that this is the best of all possible worlds. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that was ever defensible. Um, <laughs> but, but look, look Leibniz, the, the book is 500 pages, right? So it's not yeah. like he's expecting you to believe it right at the beginning. He knows sure. how crazy this sounds. Okay. Um, but but yeah. um, I'm, I'm not sure that was ever defensible. Um but I do think something that makes Leibniz different from most of the um, early modern philosophers, as we call them, of the 17th to 18th centuries, is that when he sees people kind of rebelling against the scholastic Aristotelian Thomas framework, um, he accepts a lot of their criticisms. He's not one of these reactionary types. There were people don't realize there actually were a bunch of scholastics, Thomas still in the 17th and 18th centuries, that tradition never ended. Mm -hmm. um, but unlike um, folks like Descartes and Locke, um, he's saying, well, these criticisms are, are valid as far as they go, but let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so he is really actually, I think, quite heavily influenced by Aquinas, but compared to the more conservative types in some of the universities who are continuing that scholastic tradition, he's thinking that Aquinas' ideas need some rethinking in light of the scientific revolution. Mm. And in a way, I think that means, well, to be, uh, to be 
blunt or maybe a little provocative about it. We ought to have more Leibnizians and fewer Thomas. And, <laughs> and because and what I what I mean by that is that what Leibniz is trying to do is uh, bring Aquinas's insights forward mm. into a modern scientific worldview rather than revert to the Middle Ages. And so now I'm not saying that all Thomas, all the contemporary Thomas are trying to revert to the Middle Ages. That's not what I mean, right? Sure, sure. Yeah. But but Leibniz thinks that more revision is needed here. And an especially important difference is the central note central use that he makes of the notion of laws of nature. Okay. Which is not one of the core notions of the medieval picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and his idea that these laws are mathematical, that's very much a Galilean Cartesian notion. Right. Um, and trying to understand the beauty and elegance of nature in terms of simple mathematical laws and seeing that actually is where you look for God is in the mathematical beauty of the laws of nature. Sure, sure. So, you know, so there's a way in which I would see him as um, – working on bringing some of Aquinas's best insights forward post-scientific revolution. Okay. Yeah. And I know one thing you particularly like about Leibniz is, um, and you've done some work on this, in fact, in, in the uh, book with Oppie, you defend a Leibnizian cosmological argument um, uh, from contingency. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And if you wouldn't mind for our listeners, could you kind of outline that argument and how this particular cosmological argument is different from the standard one you often hear from uh, like the Kalam, for instance, uh, how, how is it different from like the Kalam or maybe some other Thomistic style? Right. Uh, yeah. So the, the simplest cosmological argument probably is this um, first cause argument that says, um, look, pick any event, it has a cause that causes a cause that goes back in time and it can't go back forever. So there has to be an uncaused first cause, which is God. Mm-hmm. Now, philosophers distinguish between phase one and phase two of cosmological arguments. So phase one and most theistic arguments, in fact, phase one is going to prove something like uncaused cause. And then phase two is going to be like, why should we think that that's uh, anything like what we normally think of as God? Right. Um, <laughs> you know, Aquinas does phase one five times in one paragraph, famous. <laughs> and then phase two is a thousand pages long. So um, like, so, so let's not, not think that we just magically get to God here, right? But, sure. But that's kind of the simplest version. And the Kalam argument, which is so-called because it's associated with a particular Muslim tradition, is trying to that that premise the can't the chain can't go back forever they're defending it by means of paradoxes about infinity mm-hmm. um to, to show that there can't be this infinite regress of causes yeah um, now classical proponents of the argument from contingency and we mean here uh, ibn sina and the, the muslim tradition maimonides and the jewish tradition aquinas um Ibn Sina actually says, um, that actually has a view, it seems, there's a bit of interpretive dispute. It seems that he actually thinks the chain of causes goes back forever. Mm. 
Maimonides and Aquinas both say, Aquinas certainly got this from Maimonides. They both say, we know that the chain of causes doesn't go back forever because of the creation narrative in the Bible. But if you're arguing with an atheist, you can't appeal to the Bible. And so if we're going to prove the existence of God, we need, uh, we can't assume that there's a beginning to, of time. Um, because we only know that by revelation and not by reason. And so what they're trying to say is how can you come up with an argument um, for the existence of God that doesn't rely on this claim? that the universe has a beginning in time. Um, and there is some kind of notion here of dependence, that things need a, a different kind of explanation that is not the same kind of explanation that's in like a sequence of billiard balls bumping into each other. Mm. So Thomas will talk about God as the first cause but they also have the slogan, God is not a cause among causes. Mm -hmm. What they mean by that is, well, it, it, again, in Thomistic speak, they'd say God is a cause only analogically. Right. Right. Meaning God's not a cause in the same sense as a billion ball is a cause. Okay. Yep. And so this explanation is not just like God's a first event, creation is a first event kicking things off. It's some other kind of dependence of the universe on God. Mm -hmm. Um. What Leibniz uses this great example, I love this example, um, about uh, Euclid's book, The Elements of Geometry. Mm -hmm. uh, Leibniz, who was, of course, a great geometer, would have learned from this book when he was a child. Um, but this was nearly 2,000 years after Euclid wrote. Yeah. And <laughs> everybody was still using his textbook. They didn't come out with a new edition every year back then. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and so Leibniz's copy must have been copied from another copy that was copied from another copy and so on in a chain back to Euclid. Mm -hmm. Leibniz says, imagine uh, that Euclid didn't really write the book. Imagine he copied it from another copy that was copied from another copy and so on forever. Mm -hmm. In this case, we've got questions. Yeah. Right? Like, like, why were there books at yeah. all? Any of them. Uh -huh. Why were they about math and not the Trojan War? Um, why do the, why are the proofs valid and not invalid? Right? Yeah. And, and and so on. These all still seem like good questions, even though every book is copied from a previous book. Mm -hmm. And so every individual copy is explained, but the infinite chain is not. Okay. And Leibniz says the states of the universe are like those books. He's a determinist, so he thinks you can derive every state of the universe from previous state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but he says, even if it went back, even if we imagine for the sake of argument that it went back forever, which they're assuming is what atheists are going to have to say, that's a widespread assumption at the time. Um, even if it goes back forever, we're still going to ask why it was like this and not some other way. Mm -hmm. right? And so we need some kind of explanation of the total sequence of causes. Uh, and this is where I say that the best way of understanding what's going on in this argument or of making the best version of the argument today is to talk about what in analytic metaphysics is called grounding. Okay, yeah. Um, and grounding, as I define it, is the relation or family of relations whereby 
more fundamental things give rise to less fundamental things. Mm-hmm. And so we're thinking of, because the, sta- the clay is shaped thus and so, there's a statue. Mm. So clay is more fundamental than the statue. Or if you like science examples, there's a literature on the way that genes depend on DNA. Mm-hmm. So you can't identify like, you know, a, a particular gene for, I don't know, being able to wiggle your ears or something. A lot of the traits we think of aren't actually one gene. And I don't know what are good examples, but like if you're thinking about a particular gene, um, that's not like identical to an exact physical piece of DNA, right. right? Somehow in the context of the system of humanity, the of, of the human body, this bit of chemical stuff plays a role where it um, behaves in this approximately Mendelian way for Mendelian genes or, or whatever. And not all genes behave in approximately Mendelian ways. So there's all this kind of complexity, but yeah. somehow or other, we have this concept of gene that is not a chemical concept. Mm-hmm. The concept of genetics is a higher level concept. And you can talk in the same way about software and hardware and computers. Many philosophers think this way about mind and brain. Mm-hmm. So there's some kind of um, more fundamental things give rise to less fundamental things. And this is a concept that many atheist metaphysicians think we need in order to explain the natural world and to explain what science is showing us. And that, I think, is the kind of explanation that the Leibnizian cosmological argument needs. Mm. It needs to say that God is the deeper reality that gives rise to the sequence of causes Mm -hmm. rather than that God somehow figures into the sequence of causes. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you uh, distinguish as well in your work between um, these different kinds of groundings and uh, dependencies, right? Like there's constitutive uh, sort of situations and there's causal dependencies. um, And I think you go through a couple other ones, right? Like these different forms of dependence and, uh, uh, groundings, different ways of grounding, I guess. Yeah, so there's a big debate in the grounding literature or the ontological dependence literature between what's sometimes called big G grounding and little g grounding. Uh-huh. So the people like Jonathan Schaffer and Kip Fine, who are believers in big G grounding, they think there's like one grounding relation that explains all of the examples that I give. Okay. That there, that there's this like one relation. There's other people who are little g grounding theorists. Sometimes the little g people like the phrase ontological dependence instead, mm-hmm. um, because that sounds less like we're talking about just one thing. And so those would be people like um, Catherine Koslicki, um, or um, yeah, um, there'd be several. There's a number of people who hold those kind of views who think that there are so many different ontological dependence relations um, between all these different things, like the statue clay case is one thing and the like gene DNA case is another thing. And the way gases depend on molecules is another thing. Uh Um, So that's a kind of dispute in the literature. 
I'm kind of someone who's using grounding in philosophy of religion rather than someone who's a, who's theorizing about grounding. Um, <laughs> and so I'm trying to steer clear of some of these very contentious debates. Sure. But I can't steer all the way clear. Yeah. So, um, so I'm, I'm not committed on whether grounding is a single relation or a family of relations, but I do think kind of that, um, the relations all structurally work in the same way. They kind of have a common logic. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason why they belong together. It's not a totally gerrymandered class. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So the example that's my favorite example for a kind of analogy, not in the technical Thomistic sense, but in the everyday sense, yeah. analogy <laughs> for how the world depends on God's active willing. Mm-hmm is the way that the uh, that a waltz depends on the motions of the dancers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? So the, like the, the waltz exists it's happening as long as the dancers are continuing to do the prescribed motions mm-hmm. and so there's a sense in which on my preferred model god is enacting the universe mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that it's god's willing constitutes what I call history with a capital H, which is that whole big sequence of causes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was uh, um, one thing that uh, I wanted to actually ask you about because um, you talk about that in your, uh, again, your your dialogue book with uh, Oppie um, about God not so much being the cause of history but uh in the usual sense i think right um but as you just sort of said it, it's sort of he has this um it's his choice is that i think that's the word you used is that correct uh, yeah uh, talking about a, a choice or an act of will yeah in what constitutes history yeah and maybe because i i found this you know slightly difficult um that was one of the things i kind of had to think through a little bit more and, and maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit because usually when we think of like a choice or are willing something, you know, we're making a selection in some sense out of, you know, a set of options. Um, and so in what way is that really different from causing? So if God is sort of choosing something, what is he choosing and how is he, um, how is he actualizing it? If not in a causal way, does that make sense? Yeah. So I actually think I've argued in another paper that, making proper sense of divine omnipotence actually requires us to think that um, the fulfillment of God's will is nothing over and above the willing itself. Hmm. And that's actually why God's will can't be frustrated, right? So the reason why there's this kind of breakdown for us you, sometimes you, you try to do something, but you fail, right? Why does that happen? Yeah. Well, because there's, kind of your will just sort of starts off a sequence of things outside you mm-hmm. that don't always go your way. Right. And and God's willing, if God is omnipotent, wouldn't be like that. Right. Um, it would be that they're just, um, there is no difference between God willing that it happen and it happening. Um, hmm. Not not literal numerical identity, right? Mm-hmm. But the fulfillment of God's willing is nothing over and above the willing. It's the same as the willing in something like the way the statue is the same as the clay, right? 
um, if you put the statue, if you put the statue and the clay, quote unquote, and uh, on a scale, right, you only get the weight once, the, yeah. which is the weight of the statue and also the weight of the clay. They're not actually numerically identical in the technical philosophical sense, because if you smash the thing with a sledgehammer, you destroy the statue, but the clay still exists. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they don't have all the same properties, but, um, and, and yet they're somehow the same in some sense of sameness. Um, and so my thinking is that actually we need this in order to make sense of divine omnipotence, that the fulfillment of God's will is nothing over and above the willing itself. Hmm. Okay. Like statue model. Okay. Would that at all be analogous to, in some sense, um, the willing in my own thoughts uh, is in some sense, you know, my thoughts go the way that I will them to go in, in some sense, obviously uh, we don't have complete control of our thoughts, but um, is that at all similar to way, the way I can control my thoughts and uh, my willing is sort of, not easily distinguished from how my thoughts go when I'm willing them. Yeah, I think that can be a good analogy. And maybe it's even literally true in some cases that our willing constitutes certain internal mental actions rather than being distinct from them. Mm -hmm. I, really, um, I really recommend one of the most fun, fun philosophy of religion papers in recent years, which would be very accessible, is uh, Sam Lieben's paper, God and His Imaginary Friends. <laughs> so, so Liebens thinks, and he uh, he quotes from 17th century Hasidic rabbis who think that we are God's imaginary friends. Interesting. That is that that the universe is a story God is telling, or a dream God is dreaming, or something like this. Mm -hmm. And there's some sense in which ultimately only God really exists. Um, and the and the rest of this is some kind of fiction or imagination, um, and so so Liebens, whose whose views are on a lot of these issues are you know we're in pretty close agreement and we've kind of read all of each other's work and uh -huh. um, have been talking about this stuff. He thinks that you know pretty much uh, it, it's pretty much just like imagination. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what the, the way the, the world depends on God. Yeah. And so would that be then um, God's creation would not so much be ex nihilo, but ex, what would you say, ex dios or de, uh, uh, what am I trying to, like out of God himself? Like, uh, oh. does that make sense? Um, yeah, so um, there's some question about, yeah, about God's own existence. Um, God exists in God's self in kind of an ultimate way on these sorts of views, whereas we are, are dependent on God. Mm -hmm. um, Liebens goes on to say really interesting things about how God has um, written God's self into the story. Mm -hmm. And so we have to distinguish God qua character from God qua author. Mm. Okay. They're, they're not really the same. Sure. Um, and, um, there's a, he has a paper in a volume that Ty Goldschmidt and I edited on idealism. Mm -hmm. um, that's uh, Kurt Vonnegut and the creator of the universe, which is about this incident in Breakfast of Champions where Kurt Vonnegut, the author, shows up in the story 
to tell Kilgore Trout his character, like I created you and I'm done with you now, you're going away. <laughs> and the, and the, all the paradoxes that you get because like Kurt Vonnegut qua character is talking about his status as author. Right. Um, so so um, there's this, so on Lieben's view, there's this kind of puzzling stuff about God qua character that's going on. And I think I might have to deal, I, some of that stuff might crop up in places in my view, like um, I might want to deal with the, as a Christian, I might want to deal with the incarnation that way. Mm -hmm. um, Lieben's is a, a rabbi. Okay. Uh, and so he's thinking he needs to deal with the uh, sephirot, which are the personified divine attributes like mercy and justice that are talked about in the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. um, and also some of God's interactions with humanity in the Hebrew Bible through this mechanism of distinguishing God qua character from God qua author. Um, so God qua character anyway is going to depend on the on God's act, narrative activities, right. narrating the story. Um, God qua author is going to be another, there's going to be another sort of question about God as the ultimate reality and what that um, looks like, what it might mean to suppose that God's essence includes existence, as Ibn Sina said. Mm -hmm. And would that be different from the typical uh, view? So a lot of um, a lot of Christians seem to make a big deal that God and the universe are separate things. Um, but your position, uh, or at least what you were describing there, seems to be more that no, uh, it, it does have a more of an idealism feel to it that um, r really the universe is just sort of a thought in God's mind in some sense. Uh, and so it's not really separate from him um, or, or he's not outside or he's outside of it in one sense, but um, it's not like they're separate things. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, is, is that correct? Is that? Yeah. So um, I think some care is needed here because some people are much too quick to jump to uh, say that this is pantheism uh, or something like that. And I'm saying, well, only if Leibniz, only if uh, Aquinas is a pantheist too. Right. <laughs> um, because because yeah. like Aquinas, all the classical theists think that God is a more fundamental reality mm -hmm. the created universe that the created universe depends on. And that if God kind of stops willing the created world, it ceases to exist. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that sense, it's not outside of or separate from God. Mm -hmm. It's a less fundamental reality that arises from God's creative activity. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I'm saying. Now it's not uh, it's not identical with God numerically, right? Um, the statue is not numerically identical with the clay either, right? Um, and so some people might think I'm not creating enough separation, but I think that I I think that this view allows for as much separation as the classical tradition does. Sure. Um, it does, by way of thinking about it, does kind of lean idealist because I read Barclay and Leibniz all day and not yeah. idealism. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, the grounding model doesn't have to be modeled in this kind of mentalistic way if, um, if people want to somehow think of it some other way. Right. Um, but the classical tradition would say 
God, it's actually impossible for there to be anything independent of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the Kalam cosmo, uh, cosmological argument seems to be, um, at least in popular cult, uh, the popular sphere of phil, uh, philosophy of religion, the most popular. But do you think that the Leibnizian cosmological argument has um, uh, any advantages over, like, should the Leibnizian cosmological argument be more popular uh, in the sense that it has more advantages over the Kalam or what are your thoughts about it? Yeah. It's comparative I think, strengths. I think a lot of first cause arguments are confused contingency arguments. Okay. Fair. In the popular sphere. Okay. So, and I don't want to be too harsh when I'm saying confused. What I mean is that, you know, people have maybe, especially, you know, people who aren't philosophers or haven't spent a lot of time studying this stuff. I think they have a promising intuition yeah. and they have a, done the study that you would need to do to kind of develop it in the most rigorous and robust way. And the promising intuition is that kind of, even if we take physical explanation as far as it can go, there's still a why question. And people are used to thinking of that causally. And so they're thinking, oh, you get back to the Big Bang or whatever. And then there has to be something that, that caused it, right? Um, I don't think that's the right way to think about it. The paradoxes about infinity that the Kalam relied on, I think, are significant in their historical context and important in various ways. Mm -hmm. But I basically think modern mathematics has solved them. It's fine. They're like, like we know how to deal with infinities now. It's right. okay. Yes. <laughs> uh, like we were confused about infinities, then Cantor. That's the correct response to the Kalam. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, so the Kalam argument in that narrow sense, relying on those paradox about infinity, I, I kind of think is um, best left in the past. Um, yeah. There are people who give other arguments to defend that position that the universe has a beginning in time. That's a bit more uh, promising, but you end up hostage to a to kind of particular claims about physical cosmology in that case. And it's not clear whether all those claims are supported by uh, the latest physics. Certainly they're not uncontroversial. Mm -hmm. um, many people actually think that there's no consistent way of, um, of supposing that there is a first event even if the universe is finite in age, those turn out to be two different things, depending right. on whether like zero is a limit that you approach or whether there's actually a zero point. Right. Um, and many people think that the limit approach is the only coherent one. And then there are other cosmological models where the, um, you know, where the 13 and a half billion years that are, that's usually given as the age of our universe is not the beginning of all physical reality. Right. Um, and so I think that the kind of these kind of first cause arguments, they have that weakness. And I think they're also less well suited for getting something godlike because the kind of initial event kicking things off at the beginning of time uh, is a very different thing than kind of an ultimate ground of being.
you appreciate the content and tone of what Real Atheology has to offer, please consider writing a review on iTunes or sharing an episode on social media. We also have a Patreon to which you can make a small recurring donation per episode in support of the show. Music is from the Chicago-based band Casserole. We would also like to thank our patrons. Aiden Armstrong, Jason, Robin Willems, Ed Atkinson, Kashi Samara Rira, Kim Bushkovsky, Anthony Lawson, Jeffrey Rubinoff, Brandon McCleary. <laughs>